talk about something that happened about 1990 years ago. In the middle of this, we're going to talk about something that happened 3,400 years ago. But it's a long time. These stories have been in the Bible a long time. And you know, as a part of faith, they've never been disproved. No one's ever been able to say that it wasn't true. And if you want to turn to John chapter 3 this morning, you want to look at the story of Nicodemus. Great story with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1. We'll go through the first 15 verses together. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. And the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher that has come from God, for no one can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you that you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it wants. Thou hearest the sound of it, <clears throat> but you can't tell from where it comes or where it is going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Wow, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak what we know, we testify what we have seen. And you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that you know what that is a purpose clause there's a reason why he must be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life you know you don't get too far in this in this uh ver first verse when it says that there was a, a man named nicodemus a pharisee that we got to go back to chapter two because when it says now or therefore or moreover, however your verse 1 starts, there's an untranslated word there in the original language that caught my attention. It's a short word called uh, duh, D-E. That's my initials. So that caught my attention. And uh, that word means but. It's a conjunction. Or it means 
uh, on the other hand. So I got to thinking, on the other hand, what? What happened? You go back to chapter 2. We talked about Jesus turning the water to wine. He stayed a little bit after that with his uh, mother for a little bit and his disciples. And then it says that they went to Jerusalem because the Passover was near. When he got there, he saw money changers. He saw sellers of oxen, sheep, and doves. And it says he got angry. And he fashioned a whip out of some cords. And it says he chased them all, every one of them. He chased them all out of the temple. And I find it striking that he turned only to the ones that was selling the doves, at least what was recorded, and told them, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. They were selling these things at a ridiculous price. And so I went back to Luke chapter 2. Because that's where Jesus was born. And it says that whenever the, the days had arrived for them like next week to do a dedication of him. His mother and father offered up two turtle doves. You know why? Because oxen were for the rich folk. Sheep were for the middle class. Turtle doves was for the poor. And guess who they were taking advantage of? The poor. Just like the family that he had come from. And he drove them out, but he told them, he said, stop taking advantage of the poor. Stop selling the things that they can't even afford at a ridiculous price because you know that they have to have it. And then it says after that, if you go down into the last three verses of chapter 2, it says that a lot of people believe because of the miracles that he did. But then it says that Jesus knew all men, and basically what it says there, he knew that that wasn't really the truth, is what that word means. And he needed no one to tell him what they thought because he already knew what was in them. And all of this precedes a Pharisee named Nicodemus coming up to Jesus. So on the other hand, all these people saying that they believe now, but on the other hand, here comes a man. We're going to find out that first verse gives us a lot of information. And I tried to make this darker so you could see. That's why it pays to have front row seats. Because at least it'll help me as I tell you if you can't see it. It says that there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus that came. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is someone who, the word means separated. They think that they have to separate themselves from everybody else. They are pious. They are religious. And I, I not only want to separate from sin, but everyone who is a sinner. And I only want people around me who are just like me. So this kind of a guy is religious. He thinks, and you know what religion is? Because everybody always talks about going to church as being religious. Religion, the definition is, man by man's works trying to gain the approval of God. 
You are saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works lest any man should boast. So religion is false in that you think that you can be approved of God by what you do. God says you're approved when you're washed in the blood of my son. And then you get grace. You can't earn or deserve anything from God of heaven. That's what a religious person wants to do, though. What do they do? They keep rules. Oh, we make a bunch of them. You'll read through there on the Sabbath day. I just finished a lesson for a few weeks from now on Jesus and his disciples walking through the cornfield. They start to pick a couple of grains and eat it. They were hiding out, waiting on him, jumping out. They just did what was not lawful on the Sabbath day. Keeping rules. Keeps rituals. You got to go to, to prayer, church, and everything else three times a day, seven times a day of prayer. That's what a devout religious Pharisee would do. Three times a day at the temple. Pray seven times a day. Go about giving alms and sounding trumpets because I'm going to prove to God how worthy I am. He has power and authority and it goes to his head. That's the Pharisee that came to Jesus. Then it says his name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a compound Greek word which leads me to think that it wasn't maybe his actual name but a title because a Pharisee of a true Jewish lineage would probably not have a Greek name because it's Nico and Demas. And Nico is from the root word Nike, where we get our tennis shoes. And it is the ruler. It is a victor. It is somebody who has conquered and overcome. So the first half of his name means ruler. Demas means people. So he's a ruler of the people. Look at verse 1. If you got the King James Version, it probably says that the Pharisee named Nicodemus came by night, who was a what? Ruler of the people. So by God's foreknowledge and providence, maybe his parents named him that actually. But it was also a title. It was the title of who he was, ruler of the people. And with that, that means he's wealthy. He is a good old boy. He's in the club of everybody that makes the rules, has the authority, and trying to do what's good. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's well thought of in society. Everybody looks up to him. He is a teacher of Israel. He is educated. He has respect. And you put all of those together, and parents say, man, I want my daughter to marry someone like that. You look at what I was when I was 18 years old, and I'd say, man, I want to be like that. You know what Jesus saw? L-O-S-T. Lost. This man was lost. And it doesn't matter if you separated yourself. It doesn't matter if you was religious. It doesn't matter if you kept all the rules. It doesn't matter if you was wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're respected and well thought of. What matters is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And if you don't, then you can be all of these things, and you are lost. So now, as we introduced verse 1, now we know who Jesus is talking to. <clears throat> so one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus came by night. 
We got a lot of information there. I got to see where I've already caught up to. He is lost, ready for slide two. I know Tanya's trying to keep up with me, but I was everywhere. Verse three, except you are born again. Here's a man that carried all of these things with him, and Jesus is looking right at him, and he's trying to talk, and all he does is interrupts him and stops him. He said, hey, don't want to hear it. Except you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Man, aren't we finding out a lot in the Jesus story that God thinks way different than you and I do? You would think that would be a guy that he would want to talk to, that he would want to have something to do with, but he says, no, that's not the thing. Verse 2 gives us some more information if you're looking there in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus by night. People's come up with a lot of things about that, you know, it over the centuries. They all try to say... Oh, he came by night because he was a Pharisee. And he didn't want his cronies and his buddies to see that he was coming to Jesus because he intimately wanted to have a conversation with him and learn. So that's why he came by night. There are other folks that take up for him and say, no, he's busy with all of that seven prayers a day and three times to the temple and the giving of alms and being the teacher of Israel then he didn't have time during the day. He had to come at night. That's the only time that he had. Lots of things bounce back and forth. Tell you what I think it is. Because just as Nicodemus represents the world, he basically just represents everybody that wants to learn something about God. I see him coming by night as those who are lost, that are in darkness, and are curious about the light for some way. And that's what I see here. And if you look down, why I come up with that is because when I read on ahead in verses 19 to 21 of this chapter, it says this. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. This is what he's telling Nicodemus. Because their deeds were evil, for everyone that doeth evil hates the light, Neither do they come to the light, lest their deeds would be exposed and reproved. But he that does truth and cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, these are the ones that are wrought of God. So Nicodemus, by coming at night, coming into the darkness, is representing the darkness coming to light and seeing what's going to get ready to happen. You know why else I think that? Because Nicodemus is mentioned two more times in Scripture. Each time it's in John, and it's in verses or chapter 7 and chapter 19. And in chapter 7, it again mentions that he was the one who came by night. I mean, the Holy Spirit wants you to know about the nighttime visit, that he came in darkness to him. But by the end of the book, what do you see? This time, when Jesus was on the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea was taking that body down off the cross. He shows up with a 100 pounds of aloe and myrrh to help medicate the body as they wrap it. And what does it say? It says, at first came by night. He's in the daytime now, folks. He has believed and we're going to see in a minute what caused him to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I'm going to urge you, if you're here today and you have not made that decision, 
it's urgent. It's expedient that you do that, that you make that decision. And I hope that what caused Nicodemus to leave the darkness and come to the light will also cause you to see Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and bring you to the light. Verse 2 again, he says, he came by night, and then the original language says it like this. Rabbi, we know thou art come from God, comma, pause, a teacher, semicolon. That's the original. So in other words, he's trying to butter him up a little bit because I'm I'm telling you, we're going to show that this man from the scriptures is an unbeliever. And do you think for a moment that being a Pharisee and being all of those things, religious, high society, authority, and power, do you think that he really thinks the carpenter's son is a rabbi and a teacher to him? Because he's the teacher of Israel. No. But he's trying, they are trying to figure out about this Jesus. He ran them all out of the temple, remember? I wanted to tell you too that that shows just what a strong man he was. You don't go in to the temple with all of these Pharisees and all of these men and you single-handedly run them out? Boy, he was a determined, strong man. He's not like half the paintings that you see out there. No. He was a strong man, strong-willed. And these people were angry and they've sent this one to come and see about him and to spy on him and what he is all about. Because in just a couple of chapters... They're going to tell and declare their true thinking about him when they said, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. It's because he is a son of the demon that he's allowed to do this. He is not the son of God. So they bring it out here in a little bit on just exactly what they thought of him. But here he's trying to feed him a bunch of baloney. He's wanting to get on the good side so maybe he can find out something about him. And Jesus stops him mid-sentence. And he says this, right in the middle of all of that. Verily, verily, truly, truly, whatever your version says there. Anytime, I'm going to give you a hint. Anytime you see this verily, verily from Jesus, or truly, truly, think this. Point of doctrine coming up. Strong teaching. I need to mark this down. That's what he's trying to say when every time he says that. He says, I say to you. He's making it personal to Nicodemus. I say to you, except you are born again from above, because the word that is used there for born again, some versions may say from above, born from above, it actually encompasses both. The word anothen means born again from above. So unless you are born a second time from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. He cut him off. He didn't say the normal salutation like he was greeting him, Rabbi. We know, he, no, it's not, well, hey, Nicodemus, I saw you teaching in the synagogue. Nice robe. You're a Pharisee. Yeah. No, no small talk, no chit-chat. Cut to the point. You, teacher of Israel, you who think you're a devout man, you who think you're a knowledgeable teacher, You who think that you're well-respected and you've followed all the rules, except you are born again from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, 
Nicodemus is dumbfounded, isn't he? Can you imagine the teacher of Israel we're going to find out in a minute? I mean, the master teacher of Israel. Top Pharisee, respected. And here's a carpenter's son telling me, the teacher of Israel, that I've got to be born again. Can you imagine? No one has ever talked to Nicodemus this way before. And so now I see in his reply this. How can a man being already born and old, is how it reads, he is not able to go back into his mother's womb. Ooh, sarcasm alert. That's what that is. It's sarcasm. You are telling me I have to be born again? What do you expect me to do? Crawl back into my mother's womb and be born a second time after I'm an old man? Huh. That's some good advice. Not going to happen. Sarcasm. Pride coming through because of who and what a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the people. Jesus answers his sarcasm with another point of doctrine. Verse 5. Verily, verily, I say to you, except you are born of water and of spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. So your little comment there is not right because the second birth from above, if you listen to the word anothen that I said, is spirit. And that which is born of spirit is of spirit. It's not like flesh. And you're not going to go back in the second time to the womb. And then in verse 7, Jesus says, Don't marvel that I told you all of this. Don't be in wonder that I said that it is absolutely necessary for you to be born again from above. What I'm going to do to give you some help is I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations. One is an illustration of the physical world. And the next one's going to be an illustration from the Word of God back in Numbers 21. And if you're wanting to follow along, you might go ahead and turn to Numbers 21 while we're, while we're going because we'll be there in a minute. But Jesus gives him the physical one first from this earth. And he says, you know what? The wind blows where it wants to. You can see it. You can see it's working. You can hear it rustling. In other words, you can see the leaves moving. You can hear what it does. But you have absolutely no idea where it came from or where it's going. But you know it's real, and you know it's working. So it is with everyone who is born again from above, because it's a spiritual birth. You know what the name for the Holy Spirit is? Pneuma in, in the Greek. We're, what's a pneumatic tool? Air tool. Pneuma, the spirit, air, breath. That's what a spirit is. And so he says, I'm telling you spiritual things. Numa, the wind, it blows. You can see its effects. When you are born again of the spirit, you see the effects. There's not a hammer that hits you on the head. There's not something that just wipes over you and says, Christian. But people see the effectual working in the body that starts to take place just like they see the wind blowing the leaves in the in the field and that's what jesus is telling him this is being born of the spirit it makes a working on the body and you don't know where it came from you don't see it happen but all you know it did and you start to change you know you go to our website and there's pictures there 
And if you say about us, it'll say, man, a lot of us that are here have been broken down. We've been stomped on. We've been this and that. But if you go to the very end of that reading, if you'll read it all the way to the end, which some don't, it says, but we know that God loves you too much to leave you that way. Amen? God loves you too much to leave you kicked and stomped and prodded and down. And that's what Jesus is saying. This world does that. But when you're born again, you can begin to feel the effects of the Spirit working in your life. The wind goes where it wants to. And about this time, Nicodemus is, to use a country term, he's corn-fused right now. He is, at this point, angry, but he's confused. Now, you would think that the teacher of Israel, somebody who has the theological degree, would have now have a rebuttal, a reply that would be earth-shaking to a carpenter's son, wouldn't you? I want you to look at his reply in verse 9. How can these things be? Woo! Now there's some theology for you, isn't it? He had nothing to say. He's dumbfounded. He can't understand. You know what? Nicodemus is not going to talk again in the rest of this chapter. He can't. His brain is numb. It's went into neutral. He can't understand these things. And he is that. Look at verse 10 then. Jesus now is chuckling. He's took a Pharisee that's all of these things. He's took the ruler of the people. And he makes a statement back to him when that's all he can come back with. When the only thing he can come back with is, how can this be? Verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel? Depending on your translation, it might say teacher or master. But the word is hodidaskalos. And didaskalos means master teacher. In other words, the top one, the professor. Ho is a definite article, the. So Jesus just said, are you the master teacher of Israel? That's supposed to be telling people about spiritual things. And you can't understand something like this. Then we're in trouble. Is basically what he's going to say. There you go. He says, are you the master teacher and you don't know these things? And I bet his jaw just dropped. He, does, he doesn't say a word the rest of this chapter. So Jesus is going to give him some more help. I've been telling you what I know. I've been giving you evidence of what I've seen. What I see and I know I've been given to you. But then what does it say? It says, you did not receive our witness. I've told you things. I've been teaching you, but you refused. I told you he was lost, didn't I? This is where you get it from. Jesus is saying, I've been telling you over and over, and you refuse to listen. You stay in your condition because you don't hear what I have to say. You pay no attention, and you do what you want to do. They didn't recognize him as a teacher. If he had been a teacher, he wouldn't have said back there in verse 1 and 2 that he would have said, oh, your, your doctrine is so marvelous. We've heard you teach with such authority. You remember how the word says that about some people that heard Jesus teach? No one in Israel's ever taught like that. He said, mm, because we saw some miracles and we guess God must be behind him. 
they didn't believe that he was a teacher, but he just taught the master teacher a lesson right here, and you don't receive our witness. Verse 12, I've told you earthly things, physical things, to help you, and you don't believe. And basically, he says, how are you going to believe if I teach you spiritual things, which is on a higher level? If you can't understand a simple thing, pneumatics, how are you going to understand the true spirit of God? You can't. So he says, you know what? He's going to blow his mind again. Look at verse 13. Now, this is a hard one until we decipher this, but no man hath ascended up to heaven. Now, now think of Nicodemus. He's already just not talking. And now Jesus tells him, no one's ever ascended up to heaven from earth, but he that came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus, the one that's right there talking to him. But he that came down from heaven, me, which is in heaven. Ooh, that's a tough one. He's saying, the person standing before you came down from heaven, but he's in heaven. He's telling him he's God. He is son of God. He is son of Mary. He is deity and man in one thing. He will say in verse 16 of this chapter that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word only begotten is monogeneske, where you get the word gene, and mono means one. He is the only one of his genetic kind is what it says, because he is God and man together. The only one, and he will be for eternity. So while I'm standing here talking to you, I'm also in heaven. So I could tell you all kinds of heavenly things, but you can't understand them because you don't even know how the wind blows. That's what he's telling him. And you're the master teacher, and my people are in trouble. And then he tells them, after all this mind-boggling stuff, He's going to give him something that's going to help his face, faith so that in John 19, he's there at the cross. He's going to give him now the biblical evidence of who he is and what he's got to do. Look at verse 14 with me, if you would. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That word must there is necessary. It means it is, has to happen. Why? Why is it necessary that like a serpent in the wilderness is raised up, so must the Son of Man be? Well, now we go back to that passage in Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 to 9. And you know, this is the only place in the Bible that the serpent in the wilderness is taught until we get to Jesus. All it is is placed there, and for 1,400 years, nobody knew what it meant. No one knew the symbolism until Jesus brings it out now for us. Only one other time is that even mentioned, and it's during the kings when it was still hanging around. They had saved this, like the Ark of the Covenant, from the wilderness and brought it, and now people were worshiping it. They were they were worshiping this brazen serpent instead of God. And the king had it destroyed. And that's, that's the only other thing that is mentioned about this ever until Jesus brings it up in John chapter 3. But if, it, but if you did follow along in Numbers 21, it says in verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And much of the people of Israel died. 
Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. Pray, and against you, pray to the Lord that he takes these serpents away from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said unto Moses, after he prayed, the Lord said, Take some brass. He said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. So Moses made a serpent of brass, and he put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if the serpent had bit anyone, then they which had been bitten would look up to the serpent and behold the serpent of brass and he would live. That's all it says. Verse 10 says that the children of Israel now set forward and pitched in Obeth. That's all it says. They had been doing a great evil, complaining against God. Fiery serpents came in and bit them. They're dying. Moses intervenes in prayer. God says, out of brass, make a snake. Put it on a pole. If people look at it that have been bitten and is going to die, they'll be saved. Let's put this together because now he's telling Nicodemus that just like that, I'm going to be lifted up too. Well, why is that? Because we all know that the serpent in Genesis 3 tempted Eve. We all know that it got what? Cursed when God gave a curse and a punishment to that thing. The serpent's bite is sin. So, everybody who has been bitten by sin and is going to die lost, if they look up at the one who is lifted up, will be saved. Brass is a symbol of judgment because brass handles fire and can be judged of fire and molded into something good. The brazen altar in the temple and then the tabern or the tabernacle then the temple was made out of brass. It was a brazen altar. And the sacrifices for sin are placed on that altar and a fire built underneath of it so it can be judged. The brass serpent was judged, but it was a symbol of Jesus to come, and people have said, Why would that be? Because if you follow along, and I don't even know where I am. If you, if you follow along, <clears throat> Galatians 3, <clears throat> right there we go. Christ redeemed us from the curse. Being made what? A curse himself for us. He became the brass serpent. He became the curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's what the brazen serpent represented. Then, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He has made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Jesus became our curse. He became our sin. And he was judged for that on the cross when he was lifted up so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? He said, even as the serpent in the wilderness is lifted up, so must the Son of Man be. And in verse 15, that 
a purpose clause. There's a purpose behind why I'm lifted up so that everyone who looks upon me and believes shall live. That's the purpose behind it. He became the curse so that we could live. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no man that comes to the Father except by me. Upon his resurrection in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, we just went over this a couple days ago. Jesus said after his resurrection, he gave those clues to Nicodemus so that he said, you don't believe now, but I'm going to trust that you're going to come around. So when you see the Son of Man lifted up, and remember we saw that he was there at the cross and came out of the darkness. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do then after he had been lifted up and he was resurrected? Mark 16, verse 16, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Peter continued that on in his first lesson, Acts chapter 2. He's standing there. The Spirit comes. It's the first day. It's the day of Pentecost. It's the first day of the church age. And the Spirit comes in a mighty rushing wind. The wind blows, and you don't know where it comes from. But he came in like a mighty wind. It made such a sonic boom that everybody heard it and come out in the streets to see what was going on. Peter stood up and said, We're not drunk like I hear you saying. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And let me tell you something. This same Jesus Christ that you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. They were pricked to the heart and they said, Men and brethren, what will we do? That's a good question because my sin's put him there on the cross too. Men and brethren, what do we do? Peter looked at him and said, Repent. You didn't believe that he was the Christ. You crucified him. If you have come to that knowledge, believe, which is repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Why? For the remission of sins that you may what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus you got to be do to see the kingdom of God? You got to be born again from above by what? Water, spirit. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins. There's water. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Being born again, he blows and you don't know where it came from, but it's going to change your life. It's going to change your life because now you will have everlasting life. You are born of God. As the worship team makes their way on back up. I'm going to close with Peter again, but I'm going to close with his first epistle. Chapter 3, verse 21. And I'm going to promise you that if the Lord allows, I'm going to bring you a lesson here sometime soon on what really happened with Noah and the ark, okay? But Peter's going to allude to it a little bit here, and I'm not going to touch on that. But there's something that really happened there, so you guys stay tuned. I promise you it'll be something like you've never heard before, but it's straight from the Word of God. But he said there, Peter tells us, there was a time when people were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Whereunto the like figure of baptism doth now 
also save us. What saves us now? Baptism. Just as water brought them through the catastrophe and saved them, delivered them, is basically the word. We are delivered through this act that we do in faith. And it is faith. It's not a thing that we do. Everything in Hebrews chapter 11, that, that chapter of faith. By faith, Noah moved with fear and built an ark. So it wasn't works, it was faith that caused him to do it. By faith, Peter says that just as the like figure there of baptism doth now also save us. It's not the washing away of your flesh, the dirt off of it. It's not a bath, but it is the answer. You got a question on what must I do? It says it is the answer of the good conscience towards God. If you haven't done that, I pray that you don't delay. You're not promised tomorrow. I pray that today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, as we've, we've looked at Nicodemus, represents people like me. We've looked all the way back at Numbers 21, 3,400 years ago, that you put something there as a symbol for your son that those, it brought Nicodemus around to faith when he remembered what Jesus told him. That when you see me lifted up, it's like the serpent in the wilderness. I'm going to be judged for your sins so that he that believeth in me might not perish but have everlasting life. Father, if there is a heart here today that has not given you complete rule and domain in it, we pray that you will work upon that heart and upon that conscience today, Father, because today is the day of salvation. If there are those of us who have been baptized into Christ and we are part of the body, but we have maybe fallen short in ways, all of us do, we know that we come to you in prayer, First John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we will confess our faults to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we ask that you would work and let your word not come back void, but that it would extreme power be delivered today upon these folks that are sitting here. In Jesus' name, amen.